This episode covers some heavy topics, including pedophilia and suicide. We don't go into details, but please take care as you listen. Also, please note that in the show notes, we have included resources for survivors of sexual abuse, as well as those who have caused harm. You are listening to Undercurrents. My name is Ken Ogasawara, and I'm part of the Communications and Community Engagement Team at Mennonite Central Committee in Ontario. This podcast is an ongoing experiment to find a new way to tell the stories coming from our community of partners, program participants, staff, and others. Undercurrents is brought to you by Kindred Credit Union. Kindred's purpose is cooperative banking that connects values and faith with finances, inspiring peaceful, just, and prosperous communities. Kindred believes in and supports restorative justice and the conflict resolution it promotes in its operations and in its communities. This episode is about John. Sorry to keep you waiting, Rick. That, that's okay. I, uh, uh, you, not that I owe it to you, but you're forgiven. This is Rick Powell. Rick works in MCC's restorative justice program, specifically with Circles of Support and Accountability, or COSA as it's called. COSA consists of teams of volunteers and staff supported by professionals who meet with mostly men with histories of sexual offending to hold them accountable for their actions and support them as they reintegrate into the community after release from prison. The person being supported is called a core member, and I mention this because you'll hear Rick use that term. It's also a good reminder that the language of how we refer to these individuals is important to COSA and others working in the field. I heard one presenter at a conference discourage the use of the term sex offender by asking rhetorically, why are we labeling them the very thing we don't want them to be? The very first core member I had, he had significant issues around drinking. And when I first interviewed him in jail, which was at the, you know, at the time terrifying for me as, you know, the first time. Um, and I heard his story and my thought was, what chance does he have? He's an alcoholic with a condition not to drink and, 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 you know, barely literate. So I could not at the time see how this person, you know, what can I offer for this person? I had no idea. That just made me uh, feel totally, and I'll say this now, totally inadequate. I also know that the person who's way more terrified at the time than me was him. I will also say that he's still in the community. <laughs> I still occasionally see him. And, uh, you know, 20 years later, he still, you know, we, we still look back at the early uh, stories. And I, I treat stories like that. It's mm-hmm. like, man, if they, could, if they could make it, then anything's possible, you know, through support, accountability, community. Support, accountability, and community are three elements that are both crucial and hard to come by for the men that Rick works with, and he is very aware of the sensitivity of this issue. Hearing somebody say, I have abused children, is a shock. It's not for us to forgive them for what they did. It's a whole other question. It's for me to 
understand how to kind of support the core member in their struggle to deal with what they did and to maybe ask more challenging questions and to do it in a in both a, a meaningful and rich and often really painful way um, because without those conversations there's a lot of continued burden of of shame and unworthiness and um, not feeling like a real human being which doesn't help in their work towards a healthier and safer future it can get in the way talking about this work there's a lot of triggers that can occur um, so with for that always with um, sensitivity mm-hmm. and a, an appreciation that um, my words could inspire some it could make others feel that um, traumatized or, or it may uh, invite some resurfacing of traumatic uh, memories so mm-hmm. I always have to be aware of that even though we are committed to working with the uh, those who have offended uh, this work also has to always keep those who have or could be victims you know at the forefront of the work how do we create safer communities how does COSA do that in Canada there is no death penalty and there is no life in prison. Regardless of the crime, at some point, the perpetrator will finish their sentence and be released back into the community. COSA is, in part, a practical response to that reality. COSA asks, as Rick did, how do we keep our community safe? How do we prevent more victims? COSA's origin story begins in 1994 with the release of a man named Charlie Taylor who had finished serving time for multiple counts of sexual abuse against children. The city of Hamilton, where Charlie was being released, was in uproar, and the media were having a field day. Yesterday, police took the unusual step of warning the public that Taylor was headed to a central Hamilton neighborhood after serving seven years in prison. This person is a significant risk to the community and likely to reoffend. Charlie's story could be its own episode, But to summarize, a Mennonite pastor by the name of Harry Nye had the courageous idea to form a sort of support group for Charlie. Despite the backlash from the community, a small group of people from Harry's church created what we now know as a circle around Charlie. Despite the dire odds against him, Charlie, who had himself suffered sexual abuse as an orphan child, now had the support he needed to break the cycle of abuse. He died 11 and a half years later of a heart attack, having never offended again. Nearly 30 years later, vast amounts of research have made clear that COSA has significant impact in reducing recidivism. One prominent study showed an 83% reduction in sexual reoffending behavior. But when I mentioned this research to Rick, he admitted that he didn't like to rely on the numbers to gauge success. I think the way in my day-to-day work, the way I measure is the difference we're able to make with the people 
we connect with. You know, again, if it's to be seen as a journey, how we move through that journey, say with integrity and with um, support, with accountability. Um, I also know that the reality is the better we are in the way we commit to this covenant relationship, the less likely they are to reoffend. You know, there's parole officers, police detectives, therapists, like a, a, a core member may be surrounded by people. And if there's a failure, the question becomes whose failure is it? I've since learned that um, uh, it's a form of humility <laughs> is to say, I really don't have that much control over another person's life to feel responsible for what they do. I would say we could make a huge impact because of the beauty of, of relationships, but we are not their environment. We're part of their environment. It was uh, very difficult to, as a parent, separate the act from the person and um, the person being my son. This is John which is not his real name. John, together with his wife, is part of the environment that Rick refers to. John is talking about his son, Chuck. I asked John to take me back. What was Chuck like as a boy, as a young man? And of course the question that haunts many parents when their child causes harm. Were there any warning signs? I guess um, when I look in retrospect, he was the quietest of the three kids, but he was happy and content. And all three of the children were good friends growing up. As a young man, um, he was not happy in his marriage. Um, he had married a, a significantly older woman, and interests were not the same. Um, I don't think they were on the same wavelength with a lot of things. And I began to see anxiety, uh, possible depression, eating disorders, and he did come to see us shortly after um, his birth of his, his first child and expressed to us that he wasn't sure if he was going to stay in the marriage. You know, this is something that uh, kind of haunts me to this day because uh, we kind of asked him to give it his best shot before making that decision. And, you know, I often wonder if we did the wrong thing by not saying, okay, we'll leave the marriage. Sometime later, before his marriage ended, Chuck came to his parents with an even more shocking confession. He did come to us and did confirmed to us that he had um, a preference for younger girls. I find that extraordinary that he would come to you with that. I mean, I just don't even know, like, how did you feel about that? Uh, how, what was that like sitting in the room? It was very difficult to hear. Um, very difficult to hear because... Um, I think anything that uh, sort of deviates from your own sort of sense of morality uh, can be very hard to see violated in your children. And I guess the dealing with it um, became 
a, a real challenge uh, for my wife and I to accept the fact that he had this problem and issue, and was he going to be able to handle it long term? And at that time, we had discussed with him his responsibilities as a citizen and discussed legalities at that time. And he assured us that things were under control, and even though it worried us a bit, we figured he was okay. But I could also tell that he was very unhappy with himself. I asked John if he ever told Chuck he needed to seek professional help. It's very challenging when you have an adult child to give advice and uh, see if it's been followed through on. You can also drive people away, and I didn't want that to happen. I tried to give the best counsel that I could without turning him away. I had some degree of confidence that he would not break the law, that he would handle things, that he would get uh, some counseling and some help, but um, ultimately it didn't turn out to be that way. Several years went by. Then, early one morning, John received a phone call. He was told that their son was to appear in court in two hours' time and that they wanted John and his wife to be there to make sure Chuck appeared in court. He wasn't told what Chuck was being charged with. That day was a phenomenally difficult day to drive uh, two hours to hit a court time to which we had no knowledge of what was going on. And it wasn't until at the courthouse prior to the actual proceeding did I find out what had happened. Chuck had been charged with possession of child pornography. There's no words to really describe that day and the range of emotions that we were going through. Um, it's really, really hard to, as a parent, accept the fact that uh, a child has committed a crime like this. But uh, I knew that it was imperative that he received support. I could just tell by looking at him, he was in a very, very bad place and, and knew that uh, he had um, obviously gone way beyond where he ever should have. The first day that this happened was extremely difficult, but I did not know that in days to come that uh, things would even get more challenging. And um, this was kind of a prelude to a uh, disastrous time in our life. I guess the, the toughest thing after that court date was the fact that um, he became suicidal. And we, of course, had, when he got here, taken him to get help right away. And uh, one of the uh, caregivers that we took him to um, was diagnosed him as very uh, prone to become a suicide victim. And uh, so we had to actually sign papers that we would provide suicide watch um, with um, him at home. Otherwise, he would be institutionalized that day. And so for a long period of time, um, under doctor's care, uh, he was um, very, very volatile in terms of his emotions. I don't know if there can be anything worse as a parent than knowing that you have a child who is hurt. 
hurting so badly that they want to end their life. Chuck ended up serving 13 months in prison. Partway through his sentence, he qualified to transfer it to the Ontario Correctional Institute, or OCI, which is a correctional treatment centre with a mandate to provide treatment to provincial male offenders in the areas of general criminality, sexual offending, substance abuse, and anger management. Chuck made the most of his treatment there, and by the time he finished his sentence, his parents could see the difference. There was one area in particular in Chuck's life that John saw a marked improvement. One of the things that um, started in OCI is the spiritual aspect, and that continued with COSA. So as far as COSA is concerned, one of the benefits is uh, to the maintenance and then help in the spiritual being, and that has been fantastic. I'll jump back here to Rick for a moment, because I was surprised when I heard that spirituality was something that Chuck had learned at OCI. I guess the words Ontario Correctional Institute did not conjure images of spiritual awakening to me. But Rick's explanation made sense. Spirituality at its best is transformative. And when are people most transformed by spirituality? It's times of crisis. It's amazing that with the core members, how many of them, when they talk about finding, you know, they may use their own terms, right? Finding God or finding Jesus or... Uh, so often it's been in, in jail. Meanwhile, John was finding other benefits to COSA, which built on the treatment given at OCI. COSA is fairly uh, holistic in that um, it offers an opportunity to develop other interests. And uh, our son has never been terribly creative, but there is a creative component where they experiment with things like music and painting and, and whatnot and, and poetry and so mm. that whole uh, domain of the human being I think needs to be um, nursed and, and helped and that's been a big help. The other thing is that there is a way to positively talk with other people who have similar issues and how they are coping and they help each other in that way. I know that he wants to be better. He never wants to hurt someone. He never wants to go to prison again. And he will do everything in his power to avoid it. And unfortunately, it took incarceration for our son to realize what he wanted out of life. And um, it's unfortunate that that's what it took. You know, and we certainly have a great deal of loss still with um, his two children not being in his life. Um, they have accepted his apology and they have forgiven him, but at this point they don't want to have a regular involvement with him. That is absolutely devastating. Um, it certainly is one of those things now that you think back to childhood, to early adulthood, all that type of second-guessing, did we have a negative impact on him in some way? 
had we been more proactive and knew about some of the help sources that are out there, we may have been able to help him to not offend. And I will always have to live with that guilt that maybe we didn't do enough in the early stages because we didn't realize the severity. Even the smallest indicators, if a parent is seeing some things, get professional help. I mean, even if it's as simple as talking to your family doctor who may be able to lead you to the appropriate resources, these things can turn out happier for your child than it did for ours. John and his wife still carry a weight, the weight of what-ifs and second-guesses, the pain of regrets and doubt. Much like their son, John and his wife are learning to come to terms with the past, with their relationship with their son and what he has done. They are fortunate to have the support and love of all of their children, as Chuck's brother and sister and their families have stood by him. Recovery, I think, goes hand in hand with a personal commitment uh, that he has to have and a self-discipline that is still, I think, developing. Um, ultimately, we would hope for him that um, he would be happy, that he can forgive himself, to be law-abiding, to find a meaningful job, to continue the good counseling and medication support, support from groups like COSA, that he might be able to make new friends and positive ones and some new personal interests and hobbies and that he have his boys back. That's a very long and hard road to achieve all of those things and uh, it will take a lot of perseverance to do that and people along the way to assist. Ultimately, John speaks with a sense of guarded hope, not just for his son, but for others like him, who have struggled for years in silence. These people that come out need new connections, new interests, new spiritual awakening, and support from people they respect. And people running this organization, COSA, need a huge pat on the back for what they're doing because it, is, it has made a significant difference for our son. In the second and final part of this restorative justice story, we hear from Andrea Bevan, a social worker and therapist who specializes in treating those with sexual disorders. We'll also hear from Chuck himself. I want to thank John and his wife for sharing this very personal and emotional story with me. Your resilience, love, and strength through unimaginable challenges redefines parenting for me, and it's something we can all learn as citizens of our community. Thanks also to Rick Powell and the Restorative Justice Team at MCC, and of course, the circle of volunteers who support and hold accountable Chuck and many others like him. I want to thank you too, listener, if you've made it this far. I know this was a challenging story to hear, and not everybody is ready to hear it. If you feel moved to step out in a radical way by volunteering with COSA, you can find more info in the show notes. 
This episode was produced with help from Cameron Phillips and Kristen Kong. Original music by Brian McMillan. Cover art by Jesse Bergen. And mixed by Francois Goudreau. Huge thanks again to our sponsor and community partner, Kindred Credit Union. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please write to us at podcast at mcco.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Finally, I would like to thank you for listening to Undercurrents. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Ken Ogasawara. Have a great rest of your day.